Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Christian Bezadenhout is one of the leading period instrument keyboard players of his generation. He's a regular guest with the world's leading ensembles, including the English Concert, Les Arts Florissants, Chicago Symphony Orchestra and the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra. Christian has performed around the world with celebrated artists such as Sir John Elliot Gardner, Isabel Faust and Rachel Podger and has a rich and award-winning discography on Harmonia Mundi, including the complete keyboard works of Mozart, Mendelssohn Piano Concertos and Beethoven and Mozart Lieder. Christian has also been nominated for Gramophone Magazine's Artist of the Year. It's my pleasure to have him in the Classical Corner today. So, welcome Christian. Thank you, Divino. So, um, you had rather an unusual upbringing in the fact that you were born in South Africa, grew up in Australia, studied at Eastman in America and now live in London. Where would you say your roots are and how do you think being a part of these different nationalities has shaped you as an individual and a musician? Oh, that's a big one. Um, look, Tavina, the thing is, my parents decided to, to move us from South Africa when I was a, little, when I was a kid. I was eight when we left. Um, there were many reasons for that. Um, you know, in South Africa, in, in apartheid South Africa. So this was 1989 um, when we left. My parents were facing the reality that I would have to do compulsory military training. Um, all sorts of uncertainties. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest, of course, was was just realizing that the education system in South Africa was just so much below the standard of anything in in Europe or Australia, as it were. Um, I remember at the time really resenting having to leave South Africa. I mean, you're you're an eight year old kid, and you think, why the hell am I going to another country right now? What good will this bring? Um, but with the benefit of hindsight and with retrospect, it's very clear that how unsettling of a move that is for a kid, I think it it kind of destabilizes you in a way, but it makes you very self-reliant, very self-sufficient in a sense. And I think curiously enough, moving to Australia made me a quite weird kid in a sense. You know, I, I was <laughs> I was having a nice little childhood in South Africa, had lo- lovely friends. All of a sudden you rock up in this new country and you're very uncertain of yourself, very unsure of yourself. And I think actually f- for the path of a professional musician, that was incredibly helpful because you're suddenly mm-hmm. forced to, to spend time with yourself, with your parents, to realise that it's going to be very hard to fit into this new culture. Um, and I think that was a very good thing for me because I got to Australia and my parents decided that I should start piano lessons, which is just what my brother and sister had done as well. And I think I, I realised very quickly that music would be a, a very safe and solitary refuge for me as a really awkward kid growing up. And my parents were hugely supportive of it and I couldn't have been luckier growing up in Australia because the music education system there was just, I mean... It was just uh, peerless, really. The best I could have imagined. So 
at the time I was, it was very unstable, uncertain, and probably it was a hard thing for me, but in retrospect, it was a, a wonderful way to realize just how much of a refuge from the, the kind of horrors of every day growing up as a kid um, were. So I'm very grateful for that. I don't really feel very South African. I feel very musically Australian in a sense, because I had great mm-hmm. training there. Um, and then living in New York for 10 years just opened up a whole new um, avenue, new perspectives. Um, but I will say that London is the place I'm happiest living. It's the place I've lived the longest and the place I feel most at home in. And I think arguably the greatest European city in, in, many, respe- in many respects. Well, it was the greatest European city. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. That is, that's really, really interesting. Um, so before we get started on more kind of in-depth musical discussions, I thought that the listeners might like to know a little bit about you and how you came to become such a sort of internationally renowned keyboard player. And, and when did the ball start rolling with that? Was that during your time in New York or was that after you moved to London? Um, it started kind of during the end of my period in New York. Um, I'd say around 2000, 2001, when when I entered the Bruges competition. Um, I think by that mm-hmm. stage in my life, I, I'd realised that, you know, you, you're, you're a young pianist growing up and you spend eight hours in the practice room and you're working towards this goal of what, question mark. Like, you're going to be playing concertos with sort of medium-scale orchestras in, in Australia or wherever. And I, I started working on period instruments when I got to America around the age of sort of 18, 19. And I realised in that moment, it was a, a total epiphany for me. For, I realised that, that going down the road of working on these instruments w- was a way of, of, of gaining access into this world, which I had found so incredibly alluring, the world of period instruments. I mean, I was listening to, to recordings by John Elliott and, and, and Pinnock and Hogwood and Bruggen and all this stuff growing up. And I just thought to myself, this is the most intoxicating sound world a and the most um sort of uniquely uniquely placed positioning of of both information and and the sources and all this kind of ostensibly arcane material but then combined with this of this level of technical proficiency that was just going through the roof at that time in the 90s especially and so I just wanted to get on the bandwagon of this, and I needed to do that by playing historical keyboards. So it was a it, it was a little bit that the the horse and cart was sort of not quite in in sync. But I was desperate to get involved in this in this field. I was so tired of the kind of dogma and and conservatives conservatism attached to the world of the modern piano that it it, it took me getting to Eastman and starting. To, to actually play these instruments. Um, but it, it was one of those moments where I, I finally could see light at the end of the tunnel. I, I thought to myself, finally, I can kind of go back and reinvestigate the Mozart piano concertos and Mozart piano sonatas on this five octave Mozart forte piano, for example. And I don't know, it just gives you a, a sense of purpose, something that you don't have when you're a 15 year old pianist kind of trying to find your way. So it was a it was a, a massive door that was opened, but also one that I knew would take a huge amount of work and dedication. Mm-hmm. So both both things were opened up 
simultaneously or offered to me simultaneously, I'd say. Yeah. I, I feel the same in terms of going into the early music world or sort of diving into the historically informed performance route. I really, um, I'd studied and I was, you know, a modern violinist in London, freelancing with lots of different orchestras, but I just, yeah. there was something so missing, yes. a kind of a purpose, really. Yes, I just exactly. felt like I was sort of going through the motions. And then I found, you know, gut strings and everything else and started learning with Rachel Podger. And that just opened up, you know, this incredible world. And I just can't even imagine not being in it now. It's lovely to dabble now with the modern orchestras and everything else. But I think it gives you such an insight into certainly musical interpretation, being a part of that world where it's so integral to it, that... Yeah, it's it's very much horse and cart as you're as you're yes. saying. Yes, it's it's really fascinating because it um, you have no idea how rich the field is until you're in it, and also the kind of incredible integrity and information and style and beauty and passion that every person that is in this field brings to to to, to an ensemble like you know, the English Baroque soloists or the English concert or the Freiburg Baroque Orchestra, that kind of legacy of, of training and care and colour and passion and all of these individual journeys that have gone into making groups like that, it's just so beguiling. And, and I think it makes, it's a large part of the reason why these ensembles have attained such incredible uh, success. Not only do they play super well, but there's this element of personal connection and triumph and also struggle that has gone into this industry that, you know, 30 years ago was was still kind of fighting for, for its rights alongside, you know, super traditional modern performances of, of Baroque and classical and certainly romantic repertoire as well. So it's very gratifying and deeply uh, sort of honourable to be a part of this field, I, I find. Um, and when you're a teenager, especially, it's just... I mean, it's such a heady, it's very drugged in a way. Like you, you, you feel so high getting involved in all of this. I completely agree. So to change the subject slightly, um, in terms of the instruments you play, so for our listeners, you play harpsichord, piano and forte piano, and probably a plethora of other instruments as well. But um, which would you say is your favourite, if you can pick, um, out of the three? And obviously repertoire plays a huge part in this. Of course it does. I think probably if, if you had to put a gun to my head, Davina, I would say <laughs> the five octave Mozart forte piano um, for a few reasons. It's the instrument that I really got to know the most, the youngest, as in a way. I mean, I, I was playing that instrument as a 17 and 18 year old. And also, crucially, I was determined to make my way in the forte piano world with the five octave Mozartian piano, because I do maintain and believe very deeply that only a knowledge of that instrument and, and, a, and an understanding of how to make a good sound on that piano can really give you the tools to play Schubert pianos or Schumann pianos, any kind of later forte pianos. That's the starting block. It is. It's kind of the, it's the technical grammar that you need to learn in order to manipulate the sound um, is on the five octave Mozart piano. That being said, I mean, the reason for that is that I can happily play the Mozart piano concertos for the rest of my life and be okay, in a sense, in terms of <laughs> desert island repertoire. That being said, I actually, curiously enough, started playing the harpsichord before I played the forte piano. So in, in my heart of hearts, there is this kind of deeply melancholic 
17th century side to me where, where I would very happily play Froberger and Louis Couperin for the rest of my life. Um, so it's just a question of what people ask you to do professionally. So you, you, have to, you have to do a little bit what people want you to do. But I think if I had a harpsichord in my living room right now during pandemic period, um, it would be what I played the most of, I think. Um, certainly I love... I love the modern piano and it's what I grew up with, but it doesn't give me quite the same feeling of kind of visceral, visceral pleasure and joy that, that yeah. the harpsichord and forte piano do. So you became artistic director of Freiburg Baroque Orchestra and also principal guest conductor of the English concert in 1718 season, I think. So what would you say the main difference is? are between the two groups? I mean, nationality is the obvious one, of course, but musically, is there anything which puts them apart from one another? Oh, it's such a, it's such a different way of working, in a sense, Davina. Um, I mean, you know this as well. Uh, one of the things that is so different about the continental approach to rehearsal is that, I mean, FBO doesn't do a project un- unless there are three days of rehearsal, maybe four. Right. This is just... I, 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 they absolutely bank on this number of days of rehearsal. It's a, it's completely non-negotiable. So rehearsal tends to be a process of kind of finding and discovering and creating collectively. Sometimes one gets to the first rehearsal in a project with a group like FBO. We've got lots of people coming in from different countries. Um, I mean, it's a little it's a little bit like ORR or EBS in in a, in a similar way, except that in the German model, there's a preciousness um, placed on the actual procedure of the three days of actually going through the the, the process of find, finding the sound um, in so that's that's one thing with with the way London orchestras are, are structured we just we often have you know 50 percent as much rehearsal time so there's a culture of just extreme extreme professionalism, i.e. incredibly good sight reading skills, and just top, yeah. top-notch initial ensemble cleanliness as a matter of, of, of course, uh, of, of principle. principle. If yeah. you don't have that, you're not going to make it in a London orchestra. So you come to a first rehearsal with the English concert and everything is kind of cooking already. It's very clean. It's polished. It's, it's very in tune. It's together. People are quiet, disciplined. They're ready to work because we have, you know, one and a half days sometimes. Um, with, with a group like Freiburg, there's a lot more of a kind of, um, how can I put this? It's a, it's a bit more like an exploratory kitchen situation. You've got a lot of ingredients that need to come together. The sound hasn't quite found its focus in a way. Um, it's, it's not quite the same all the time. Um, the, the difference from the beginning to the end is much bigger, I find with a group like FBO and it takes a lot more energy the the working environment is a lot more um democratic so that means people want to be heard which is an important part of the way the sound is made as well I think that's very different in an English group where you know you're you're really playing you're really playing under a director and that's part of the structure of the way the sound is made as well um, they both have their strengths and weaknesses. It's one of those things where sometimes when I'm with one group, I think, oh, God, you know, all this talking is driving me crazy. I just wish we could have more quiet, you know, to, to just hear what's being said, what's going on. Um, 
That being said, I think um, my work with the English concerts I, I adore because um, there's this great sense of commitment and dedication from the players and also because of the fact that the string principles are really almost always the same and in the same positions. There's this sense of ownership of the string sound, which I love, which, which is a mm. very, um, you know, it's very similar in, in, in OR and EBS, that there's a very strong identity to the string sound. You know, players are, are not just changed out um, depending on the call list. And I love that because you can really work on, on creating and sculpting the sound, which is one of the things that drew me so much to this world of period instruments is that the, the sheer technical possibilities of the, the range of tonal colours is just off the charts. It's just kaleidoscopic, mm. you know. Yeah, I mean, you direct and perform as a soloist with loads of international groups. And certainly from my experience in early music, each country tends to have its own national style of playing, as you have just demonstrated how do you manage to embrace this while staying kind of true to your your own style and identity that's a really tricky one um i suppose every single situation is just different and you have to just see what you're working with who the people are it is um that being said i think what you say is very right and davina in the sense that play directing you know directing a mozart concerto or symphony program from the keyboard or Bach cantatas or a Matthew Passion playing continuo, it just puts you on a different wavelength with the players. Um, you know, when I'm in rehearsals with the English concert directing a Mozart symphony, I, I, dem- I demonstrate what I want. Um, not only, you know, I, I play passages from the symphony on the keyboard to try and give a sense of what, what I want the gestural direction to be, what I want the quality of the sound to be also. I, I want players to feel that the way I make the sound is the way I want them to make the sound, which is a very different thing when you're standing in front of someone saying, make this sound that I have in my mind's ear. But I want to actually show people what that sound is. And similarly, when I'm directing a, a Matthew Passion from the harpsichord, I want to help the band make the sound that I have in my head. And I want them to hear that in the way that I play to them. So that sense of mm-hmm. collaboration in the creation of the sound is something which I think dramatically changes the way you hear this music. I mean, we know, for example, that Mozart directed in Führung in 1782. He directed it from the keyboard in Vienna. Now, there's no recitative in that piece. Mozart is not playing notated music for the, for the keyboard, like Figaro or Cosi or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he's in there being the kind of... the 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 musical kernel the 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 kind of um directorial responsibility of the entire thing is on his shoulders and that's about tempo character sound and i'd like to think that when you direct a band like the english concert or the freiburg baroque orchestra and you're playing keyboard and directing at the same time it's that kind of sense of deeply 18th century aesthetics of of the the thing being conductorless but there's a director, there's no one waving, but there's someone who's like, mm-hmm. he's guiding the ship with pure force and energy. Um, but that's very different from group to group, as you say. The, the, way, the way people want the sound to be made, like whether it comes from the treble instruments, whether it comes from the bass instruments, whether the violin section is willing to let you really get your hands on that part of the orchestra and say, 
look, guys, we have to be much more aware of what's going on horizontally here. Um, um, sorry, what's going on vertically? My apologies. What the base, what the base is kind of bubbling up under the surface and how that affects what you do as, as treble instrument players, um, which is why I think it's, it's so important for continuer players still to be directing this kind of repertoire. Mm. Yeah, and would you say, you know, obviously being a soloist or a director is, I mean, still slightly different shoes to step into. Um, you're directing from the keyboard um, if you're playing a Mozart piano concerto, but if you're directing a Matthew Passion, um, I suppose if you're, even as a soloist, you can really push a group to move to your sound world, as you're saying. Um, yes. Help them, you know, get a different approach to the music, to really live and breathe it as you have it in your head. Yes, absolutely right. And that is something that happens over a course of a few days, in my experience. It doesn't happen immediately. Um, but there's a, there is a wonderful kind of focus that comes from working with a group where you lead by example. I mean, I'm the first to say that I'm also really hard on myself with my own playing. And I like to think that sometimes that can bleed over into dangerous territory. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's very helpful when you can show people that you care as much about your own playing as as they do and that that creates a different kind of sound somehow. and a different dynamic within yes. the group and between the players because you're directing but you're also all equals yes absolutely and i think that's you know being a an instrumentalist myself in these groups i think that's just it's really wonderful when you feel like you're in it as one whole organism together that i could i could not agree more and you know, that's why you can hear a group of one and a part strings from a group, from a team like this. I don't, it doesn't matter what, um, double A-M, O-R-R, E-B-S, well, not O-R-R, but um, Freiburg Baroque. And there's always this sense of, of just commitment and dedication. And I think we wouldn't want to do it were it not the case. You know, I, I like the sense that even, you know, among our colleagues, you've still got this sense that people come and they just care so much and... We're very lucky to work in the field that we work in. We really, really, really are. Um, you must have done so many incredible concerts all around the world over the years. I know for me, the success of a concert is completely dependent on many factors, such as location, tiredness, when you flew in, how the audience responds, the building. Mm. But there, there must be a few, just to pick a number, that have really jumped out at you for being unique in some way. Yes. Um, let me think. Um, one of the one of the first moments that I think I'll always remember probably will will flash before my eyes, you know, when I'm um, when they turn off the machines um, was the the first concert I ever did with with FBO. I stood in for Andrea Steyer, sort of about three days' notice, and flew to Barcelona to play Mozart five nine five, the last piano concerto with them. We had a twenty minute rehearsal on the stage before the concert, and I was so nervous. I mean, I was in awe of the group and had admired them from a distance for such a long time. And you know, just sitting on that stage in Barcelona playing the last Mozart piano concerto with this, you know, just really polished team. For the first time. In that incredible building, in, in that Palau. Incredible. You know, it was just like, you can't make it up. And I worked so hard to get that ready as quickly as I could. And I, I just remember thinking, my God, I mean, this level of polish and, and pep and energy and detail and attention to, to the, the sound and intonation, it was just astonishing. Um, 
was one of those moments where you realize also what a master orchestrator Mozart is. And when you're in the middle of an organism like that, how deeply gratifying that is. That, that was one, that was in 2007. It was one of those big moments that just sort of changed things for me, I think. Um, another one, I guess, would have to have been playing all the Bach sonatas with, with Isabel Faust in Berlin at the, at the Festspiele there. Um, also a kind of terrifying event because it turned out that John Elliott was in the audience for the second part of the whole thing, which we didn't know. You know, it's just one of those things that really, you know, it puts you in a different frame of mind. Um, but all, all, playing all of that, all of those sonatas in one go, you know, over two or, two or three hours mm. with other pieces as well, with someone of that kind of integrity and deep concentration is, um, you know, it's like, it's like working with a, just a wildly gifted athlete. You know, there's a kind of Zen focus that, that just bleeds out from, from a person of, of like that. John Elliott is the same kind of person mm-hmm. in that sense, you know, just brings a very different kind yeah. of concentration expects you know you just bring it um he has that kind of personality um and i think the other one in recent memory was a matthew passion i did with dunedin consort last summer in boston um which was a small forces version it was only eight singers and i had a lot of friends on that on that trip and they said it was it was just you know top notch it was one of the my most favorite things i've ever done um we just had the absolute a team and maxi chamber music organism and yet ostensibly it's this large-scale or kind of oratorio passion format that should feel very uh lofty and and large-scale and victorian in a way and what i really deeply believe is that the kind of bachian led um color for a piece like that where bach is really directing as a continual player. And I believe deeply that that changes the choreography and narrative of the piece and, and how the players, as we were saying earlier, how they experience something as, as deeply moving. Absolutely. You obviously travel a huge, a huge amount um, and tour. So there are obviously various different types of touring days that we've both experienced. Um, what would you say your average touring day looks like on either a good or a bad day you choose? Oh, it depends what groups we're talking about. Um, <laughs> very often, um, on these solo <laughs> recital tours, it's a lot less stressful because I can determine my own schedule. Um, very often on these orchestral tours, like with um, the Beethoven tour that we did with John Elliott and ORR a few years back and orchestral tours with Freiburg, that sort of thing, you know, because of the new landscape, well, the landscape before coronavirus we we would do five concerts in five days and so you know what that's like you're on a plane at seven o'clock in the morning and then stressful rehearsal and then a kind of nap if you can call it that and you're exhausted and the body is saying I cannot and don't want to do this and invariably those those turn out to be some of the best concerts absolutely which is almost the most frustrating thing when you've had promoters and things putting you on terrible you know, transport options, and then suddenly you play the best concert of your life, and you think, oh, damn, it wasn't meant to be that good. Absolutely. We wanted them to see that we were really tired, so we didn't have to do this again. <laughs> I know, and it sets a dangerous precedent, because they think, well, you know, these terms and conditions are fine, so let's do it like that next time. Yeah. Um, but it's remarkable how, how much we can coral our energy and adrenaline in moments of terror. 
um, especially for for really high profile things. Um, so I, the jury's out on that. I don't I don't know what the recipe is for those. Some days I sleep late and it's very relaxing and I have a nice late breakfast slash lunch and I go for a walk and I do a little work and I feel super relaxed. And then the concept is kind of average. Um, other days you're panicked and stressed and sometimes really upset as well, you know, or maybe you've had a little bit too much to drink the night before and you wake up and you think, oh God, you know, is this really going to go? Like, how does this work now? And then it always sort of magically happens. But I will say that the only way that's really possible is if you're doing it in a way where the rhythm seems so natural that you play five concerts in a row and you do that enough times a month that that really feels like the new normal, which is also a really weird thing to be admitting because it's just, it's just demented. It's bonkers what we do. And it absolutely is. And I think you're you're totally right in that. I've been on so many tours where, I mean, we did a Bach Cantart, excuse me, a Bach Cantatus tour with uh, the English Brock Soloist a few years ago. And I think we were away for two weeks or two and a half weeks. And it was sort of a huge amount of cantatas. And we would do three or four concerts back to back with a different program in each concert. And then, and then start again in and then recycle it again and it was just every night you had to be you're exhausted from the travel the rooms weren't ready in the hotels all of that and you had to just come to the concert hall with this just zen and just think we're here and invariably it's the most incredible venue and there's a beautiful reception after and all of this sort of stuff you really want to enjoy it all but you just have to as you were saying with Isabel this this kind of zen uh, focus and energy just adapt into that and and embrace it because you're there you might as well just do your best and and invariably everybody does that and that I think is yes, what carries that's it off right. and it's amazing to see how you learn on the job you know like when I was a teenager I could never have imagined the types of stressful situations that I'd be in I would have thought impossible like you can't do that but then the body has this amazing ability to just learn on the job and get better while you're doing it and so suddenly then you do these tours and the conditions are extreme and the pressure is just horrendous and it goes really well. And it's, it's dangerous though. It's very kind of um, Faustian pact that you uh, go, go into undertake. Um, so, and now that we're, then, that we're not working because of Corona, it really, you really take a hard look, a long, hard look at that rhythm and, and how sustainable it really is Absolutely. and what it does to the, to the psyche, you know? I know. I completely agree. So, on when you are touring how would you um in the instrumental world if you went backstage before a concert people are doing yoga eating bananas drinking coffee you know all of those sorts of things how do you prepare do you have a pre-concert routine or ritual that you always do before you go on stage or not not really Davina I mean the, the the biggest thing that I face backstage is just um negotiating in my own mind the nervousness of knowing that often I've not played the piano I'm playing ever before Mm -hmm. or I haven't seen it in six months and there's this delicate balance where you've had a three-hour dress rehearsal and you get used to the piano and the sound and then basically the next minute you're on the stage in front of you know 800 people or a thousand and it's kind of coming up with strategies for dealing with the terror inside of you and being able to kind of 
as you said earlier, come up with a, a zen-like way of accessing that relaxed sound that you made in the rehearsal on the stage in front of a thousand people. And I think that's the biggest thing that I tried to relax myself into before I go onto the stage is I play very slowly, um, very kind of glacial and about, you know, just really relaxing, relaxing my body in, into producing the sound so that I can access that material when I'm nervous on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and just just slowing down the brain as much as possible to um, just so that all those corners of difficulty I can maintain a, a very kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like just very, clinical is the wrong word, but very objective and above and very rational approach to these difficult places. Um, because, you know, this music, especially on these tiny early keyboards, I mean, the, the success, the, the, the chance for failure is enormous. I mean, it's a knife edge, like when you're playing a five octave Mozart piano. So you have to find something very kind of very calming and zen and interior in yourself in order to have the perspective to to not like crash and burn in these difficult places um so that's what i do i try to just get myself in that in that mode before i go on stage absolutely we have uh, chatted before about the pair of us uh, neither really doing very much practice unless we actually have something huge you know to cut coming up that we really need to prepare for which is actually usually all the time of course (laughs) but if you've got a solo recital coming up maybe in a week or so how does your practice schedule look and how do you approach um tackling difficult repertoire that's a very good question Davina I find that I need to be much more boy scout with myself I need to do much more practice um not so much more much more practice but more regular practice it needs to be a little bit more mindless and a little bit more just about consistency. So it's, I find that the solo preparation for a recital, for new pieces especially, is just about like getting that physical information into the body. So it's there when you're under pressure. Exactly. In the muscle memory. And then when you are put under this huge pressure, you can tap and you're looking at it objectively, as you're saying, clinically, you can just tap into that and it's it's there. Yeah. And that's a very different type of physical coordination that you're dealing with when you're playing continuo, for example, where, you know, you're aware of the material, and you know what's happening and you know what the figures are and you know what the harmonic crunch moments are that are going to be tricky. But with solo playing like that, with pre-ordained material, it's then, then I find myself having to become more like my 15-year-old self. It was just a bit more about playing for four hours a day and not so much about um, dissecting. I mean, you still have to dissect problems, but you don't have as much time to do that in a sense because you just need to get the body like introduced to the corners of the music in a way. Um, it's just a very different type of physical training. Um, but I don't do it so often, to be honest, because, you know, it's um, also the type of concentration, physical concentration that you need when you learn, let's say, a new Beethoven sonata versus a new Mozart sonata is totally different. And that changes dramatically as you turn the corner of the late 18th century to the 19th century. So it's also very different depending on different repertoire, I find. Of course. You've recorded over 18 albums. Um, 
Which would you say your favourite album was to record, if you can narrow it down? Um, I think hands down my favourite recording to, to, to make was Bach Sonatas with Isabel Faust, uh, Obligato Sonatas. I knew I had known Isabel for a long time. We worked together a lot, but we'd never recorded together. And that teaches you so much about a colleague. Um, it's a bit like getting married in a way. <laughs> um, and we were forced to record very late in the day because we had to last minute change recording venues. So we were there sort of midnight recording, you know, E major obligato violin sonata. And, you know, I, I just found my soulmate in, in a sense that Isabel is not afraid of. In fact, she just cherishes the kind of incredibly detailed session work that I love so much too. Like that feeling when you're in a recording and you feel relaxed and sure of yourself enough that you can go take after take and it gets better, you know, because there's this kind of very, um, very, um, very kind of non-judgmental relaxation that comes across the room, especially when you're working on a project with only two people in the room and the producer. And that's just such an amazing feeling because you go home and you you think, man alive, that was exhausting, but we know that we have enough material to cover this. And that's... Um, sometimes you work with people who just don't have that kind of concentration or just tire physically or mentally and man Isabel is not one of those people <laughs> no it's I was gonna, really astonishing yeah absolutely I was going to ask actually whether it's harder recording on your own or with a duo partner um and obviously both has have their limitations and their advantages but it sounds like recording with a duo partner like Isabel was you know, a dream. it truly it truly was um it was an unexpectedly happy an intense, really hardcore um, session, but it's just so different in different situations. Sometimes you're more tired than your partner, both physically and mentally. Sometimes they want things from you that you're not able to give them and vice versa. Sometimes I find myself in situations where I realize that I want more from the situation, but I have to gauge very carefully how much I ask from my colleague because it might tire them, also on a physical level. And that's very delicate and very different. And I, when I listen back to recordings, I can hear that sometimes. You can hear when people are, when the when the streams are not just running super concurrently. Um, but sometimes it really just it really works. And with Isabel, that was just one of those moments. Also because it was dark outside, and you're just really focused on this very arcane, quite, quite difficult and and um, music where the secrets are very very much hidden away and. Very gratifying experience. Definitely. I mean, you having listened to the disc, you both have just the most glorious dynamic together and that really comes across listening to it. I've actually had, obviously, the pleasure of working with you both individually, both with Sir John Elliott Gardner um, over the last few years. And obviously, as a violinist myself, these obligato sonatas are very central to my repertoire. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the compositional technique that Bach uses of making both the violin and the keyboard parts completely equal in importance is something which was not often found in the Brock period because it was the use of continuo, which was the norm, rather than having equal importance between the melody and what we would call the accompaniment. That's absolutely right, Davina. And in that regard, these sonatas are just path-breaking. I mean, they're groundbreaking in their revolutionary 
idea of the conception of, of what both instruments are, are able to do in a sense. I mean, suddenly the harpsichord is, is, is um, ripped out for, from its previous position as a continuo instrument and cast in the spotlight um, as, a, as a true obligato partner, not just in, tr- tr- you know, total trio sonata texture like you hear, where you just have really literally three voices, but Bach is, is at pains to come up with the most richly varied textural solutions to the to the ostensible problem of, of what he's dealing with here. And, you know, the first movement of the E major sonata 1016 is a classic example where you have these richly, like almost five-part string-like um, symphonia textures in the harpsichord and the violin playing this Corellian, you know, just luminous line. Ascent of, of to heaven, really. Absolutely. That's, that's how I, I feel it. You know, you've got the lilting thirds in the keyboard and they sort of carry the melody effortlessly through these twists and turns and dark modulations. But then you suddenly come out into this sunlight again and it's just he writes it so beautifully it just I think it does so much justice obviously to both to both instruments and actually one of my favorites from the album is the G major sonata BWE 1019 the first movement it's just so joyous it makes my heart just jump it's a sort of adrenaline rush (laughs) and I don't know whether it's the phrasing and the motifs that Bach uses which is so uplifting but the way that the two themes are passed back and forth between the instruments it's just so conversational and it's such a great example of how both of the instruments are really equal. Absolutely and you know you have to imagine that you know Bach is in Curtin writing for probably Spies and and um, and his patron is really enamoured of this whole new thing, the whole style. And Bach is sort of forging a new path and a new genre here. And we have to remember, too, that probably the details of exactly what texture went where and this sort of idea of improvisation in progress and Bach at the keyboard finding ever more exciting and and exploratory ways to solve the problems of these textural um, shifts in paradigm must have just been extraordinarily exciting. And from that standpoint, these pieces really, they set the course in motion for for the sonatas of Mozart and Beethoven in the later part of the century. Um, they're just astonishing in, in, their, in their coverage of different textures, contrapuntal illusions, um, formal aspirations, um, you know, some movements sound like they come straight out of a Bach passion. Others feel like well-tempered clavier um, uh, organized for violin and keyboard. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a remarkable set. And it's obvious that Bach prized it so highly that, that a piece like the G major, as you say, was revised as heavily as it was. And they're, they're really, they're really something. I think some of the greatest German works that Bach wrote, to be honest. Absolutely. Well, you can find Christian and Isabel's recording of the Bach Obligato Sonatas on the Spotify playlist for this episode of The Classical Corner. One of my personal favourites, actually, from the album is actually the first movement of the C minor sonata. And I think by contrast to the G major and the E major, it is just so melancholy and heart-achingly beautiful to play. And Bach beautifully weaves the instruments in and out of each other and you've got the rocking keyboard path underneath the melody but the registers that Bach uses means that you have this sort of ebb and flow 
between the two voices, both bringing them to light and dark, which I just find so mesmerising. It's incredible. It's such a, it's such a, a modern sound that he creates. A bit like Mozart, without any previous activity in the domain. You know, Suddenly like, just, where did this come just, from? comes from some kind of other cosmic realm um and it's a fully formed texture that sounds like it's been there for hundreds of years um it sounds so paradoxically modern and yet it's very antique at the same time um uh, but i think he hits on this amazing strategy or stratagem where he there's a sort of lute like um world that's evokes in the harpsichord which again ties into things like john passion and, and matthew passion and, and those resi- uh, arioso moments in those pieces um and in doing that he hits upon this amazing recipe where it starts to sound like late 18th century keyboard music and i think that germinal seed is is then set without bach even knowing it and people see these pieces and think yeah there's something here that we were missing and bach also doesn't do it all the time, you know. But a piece like the first movement of the C minor is really prototypically modern in the sense that it establishes these paradigms of intertwining voices, but also melody and accompaniment, but in this beautifully sophisticated way simultaneously. Absolutely. And I think, you know, he uses the full scope of registers in both instruments. Yes, absolutely. it's fascinating, actually, having played it, to listen to it and see what it does to the ear. You're, you're, yes. you're taken on a journey with with both instruments very much interweaving in and out of each other. Absolutely agree. Well, here is my recording of the first movement of Bach's Sonata for Violin and Harpsichord in C minor, BWV 1017. I'm joined on the keyboard by Oliver John Riven.
So Chris, let's talk about your Mozart concerto disc with the Freiburg Brock Orchestra. You've mentioned to me before that a particular jewel is the second movement from the piano concerto in F major. Why is that so special to you? You know, Davina, Mozart, I mean, Mozart's written piano concertos before and very good ones, um, especially E-flat 271, but he gets to Vienna and he's now really having to forge a new life for himself as a kind of entrepreneur, in a sense. Um, He's not yet got a court position. He's really still uh, desperately trying to get the kind of big break in opera that he badly wants. So I think it's very clear to him that the strategy for marketing success is going to rest very heavily on presenting himself as a keyboard virtuoso. So these these first Viennese piano concertos are, are just a delightful snapshot into what how clever Mozart's mind is. He's writing music that's difficult, but not too difficult. It's accessible, but also just has these these um, elements of of the mature style that will really come into focus in the next three years. And you can just see hints of this so devastatingly beautiful, moments of such melancholy and, and heartbreaking beauty that that are... Kind of not really set up so much from the ostensible features of this of the movement. I mean, this piece starts very innocently and very beautifully. With I was just going to say, I, I was listening to it earlier, and it's just it's childlike, innocent, and and beguiling. It's absolutely it's, it's and beautiful. and yet it it turns these corners, these sudden sforzato chords on on unexpectedly dissonant notes and and wildly cosmic textural experiments between the top of the orchestra, um, violins and oboes and the keyboard. And and all of a sudden, as with all of the best Mo- Mozart, there's just this, it turns a corner and it becomes something where you're sort of, you know, smiling through tears in a way. It just, there's a kind of a hidden, latent melancholy in this that is just so captivating and I just think that the textures are I mean there's no one who can write textures like this in the 1780s um, they're just they're yeah, really hypnotic I thought when I was listening these beautiful little interjections from the single strings conversational it, it's just so charming but also incredibly sophisticated at the same time and you know we really we decided to make those single strings you know Leopold has sources for the D minor piano concerto and the B flat and it's very clear that they played a lot of this one in a part and I think it's so wonderful to have both of those all of those sound worlds available full strings and one in a part um, at your disposal. Absolutely. So another work we must must touch on is Brahms's Geislich leader which I know that Sodoran Elliott Gardner's arrangement of this for the Monteverdi choir is particularly close to your heart. It is Davina. Um my when my dad um was very ill in 2012 i went down to south africa um and i'm so glad i was there because we we spent some time together before he died um but it was one of those things where you know you're in the intensive care unit and they say look it's you know it's time for us to make a decision and we had to do that and we just i had my laptop there and i just pulled out my laptop and i just played things that i thought were really be- really beautiful um and my whole family was there and we just sat together and listened to various things mozart beethoven and and the john Elliott's arrangement of this guy's lead um which is originally for for organ 
and now in this version for strings and choir just attains a kind of very supernatural beauty in in a way um and just one of the greatest things i think on on that set of the brahms symphonies so so beautifully sung and played um and it was a new piece to me as well um but it's one of those things where i mean the body really remembers this sort of thing so well you know you could just i put the first few notes of that on any time and it just transforms you back to to sitting by the hospital bed um but i can't imagine and this was the last thing that he heard um i mean in whatever state of consciousness he was but it was the last thing that he heard so the six minutes that that we'll i'll never forget certainly my family won't either I was listening to it today and I mean it really is one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. I certainly John Elliott's arrangement is just it's astonishing. incredible. And I think anything sung by the Monteverdi choir is made to sound transcendental. Extraordinary. And they were just in, I mean they just sounded so wonderful in those concerts. I saw some mm. of them here in London and I mean just um re- yeah really really something. Uh, a, a real moment that project was just a uh, a really magnificent achievement. I, I was actually looking at the translation earlier for the for the song, and it was saying, "Do not be sorrowful or grateful. Be calm, as God has ordained, and thus my will shall be content. Only be steadfast in all you do. Stand firm. What God has decided, that is and must be the best." So I think it's it was perfectly fitting for that situation and yeah, just yeah those were good words for the time absolutely on that rather sad note i think <laughs> sad but beautifully happy at the same time i think it's time to wrap things up for today um chris it's been such a such a pleasure welcoming you to the classical corner and thank you for sharing your wonderful knowledge and expertise with us all likewise thank you so much Davina. it's been it's been a real real joy and i hope we can do it again soon for sure Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye.